Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, a pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Jennifer Lee, and I am joined by my two co-hosts, Tamara Hajat at Cincinnati Children's and Peter Liu at Nationwide Children's, both in Ohio. Hey, guys. What? Two co-hosts? How did that happen? How did that happen? Hello. Why am I here? Why are you uh, here? Peter is our very special guest today. <laughs> whoop, whoop. Yes. Yay. Thank you. Yeah. Big fan of the show. Um, thank you so much for having me on. You are a big fan of the show? Yeah. I listen to like every <laughs> single episode. Thanks for listening. Do you get your CME? Yes. <laughs> that was a hesitant yes. <laughs> I've done it for a few. Yes. CME. Good, good, good. So uh, how's it going, Jen? It looks like you're recording from your car. <laughs> wow. Way to just blow up her spot. Today's actually a staycation day for me. Cool. And one of the things I like to do for fun is ride my bicycle. And we're probably going to like go to one of the trails. There's actually a trail. It's called Camp Chase. It's mm-hmm. between Columbus and Cincinnati. And so I think we might try oh. to ride on that today. For oh. the listener, she is wearing professional cycling glasses, what oh, looks yeah. like a <laughs> cycling jersey. And there are it bike is. tires in the back of her car. It's like legit. Yeah. Well, because the bikes are on the roof of the car right now. Oh. So, so why are you wearing the bike glasses in the car? Oh, they're prescription. Oh, okay. That's what I thought. Yeah, Yeah, I was like, oh, this looks like uh, prescription bike glasses because they're not tinted. You should get them tinted. I do have tinted ones also. I also have green ones. So all kinds. Impressive. But anyway, so any announcements for today? So there is going to be a uh, Peds GI chat following this episode. But instead of the Thursday after, it's postponed a little bit because our guests plural for the uh, chat are we're busy so it's going to be thursday august 25th at mm-hmm. 7 p.m okay. eastern so and our guests are not just one or two but a billion of the uh <laughs> the top experts in this area yeah motilitists <laughs> dr bruno champatazzi dr katya kovacic i may be there as well is uh Dr. DiLorenzo joining? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. He he called me persistent. And I was like, yep, that's my yeah. middle name. Yeah. I'd like you to join. <laughs> I think well, he couldn't wrap all- his mind around that there were multiple guests. But, I uh, mean, that's amazing. We get like multiple input from multiple people. Yeah. And for our listeners too, Katya has a really great episode on adolescent nausea mm-hmm. from our first season. So throwback to our very first season where we interviewed her in person in Peter's office when she was visiting Columbus. Yes. Yeah. That was before Tamara was a co-host. I know. First season. Yeah. How things have gotten so much better since then. I think we were maybe still huddled around a blue Yeti. I think we were. Yeah. And actually that episode is not CME. It's not CME eligible. So for any listeners who go back and listen to it, it's a great episode, but you cannot get CME for that one. Right, right, right. But we have other ones that are also CME eligible. So listen to all of them. So today we're going to talk about gastroparesis. It's a great topic. And we have the expert today, um, Dr. Peter Liu. Dr. Liu is... um, an associate professor at Columbus. <laughs> the Ohio State University College of Medicine. The Ohio State. Should I just introduce myself? I yeah, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh... I will do it. I will do it. Dr. Peter Liu. Dr. Peter Liu is an associate professor of pediatrics at the Ohio State University College of Medicine, and he is the research director for the Motility Center at Nationwide Children's Hospital and one of the co-hosts of Bowel Sounds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're excited to have you, Dr. Liu, on Bowel Sounds. Thanks and for having me. Yes. Well, on to the show. On to the show. On to the show. Yay, we did it together. <laughs> but we didn't do it together. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Lou. Hi, Peter. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You're um, in the hot huge seat. Fan, huge fan of the podcast. You're in the hot seat. Yeah, I am. <laughs> oh, man, I, I got a little bit nervous, like, 
30 minutes ago, like, oh my God. Yeah. I'm going to sound like an idiot. You should be nervous. I know. We have yeah. hard and new questions for you. <sighs> yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. We have very, very, very hard questions. And I'm going to start with the first one. Yes. Okay. Do it. So, <laughs> so, I mean, we already know your answer to the question that we already asked our guests. It's like, describe yourself in one, in one sentence, but we already know that because you said that in like the season three kickoff episode. So right. my first question is, if you had to choose between turning into a vampire, a werewolf, or a mummy, <laughs> which one would you choose and why? <laughs> uh, okay. Vampire, werewolf, or mummy. Yes. Um, I would, I would definitely choose vampire. I don't actually ah. know that much about these creatures, but... Uh-huh. There was the Twilight series. I was which gonna ask if you were a fan. I've never watched any of them, but they seem like really cool. I mean, when the sunlight hits you, your skin turns to diamonds. So Is that because they're dying though? Glitter. <laughs> well, so you know what I would be? Sun? I would be a vegan vampire. <laughs> that what means you that? would die. I don't think how that how's that I work? I don't wanna like I don't wanna drink blood, but I wanna sleep a lot. <laughs> I'm like okay with the uh, idea of drinking blood. Mm. Like, and it sounds like really weird. I don't know where we're going this episode, but but in certain Asian cultures, like people, like yeah. in Taiwan, in hot pot, people put in uh, yeah. like blood cakes. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. It's uh, not delicious, but if I had to choose out of the three, like werewolves and mummies, I feel like eat people. I'd rather just drink blood. Mm. And then you turn them into your oh. friends. Because then they'll be werewolves oh, yeah. also. Oh, not werewolves. They'll the... be vampires also. Yeah. Right. Well, right. okay. I'm going to throw in a question since Tamara got to ask a question. This, is you this your episode back, or my episode? <laughs> if you were to come back as an animal, what huh? animal would it be? You know, I haven't like thought about this too much, but panda. Oh, yeah. good one. Ooh, that's a good one. They are like, they just sit there. It's, I'm not sure how they've ever survived because they don't like do anything. <laughs> they don't move very fast. They just... Eat all day. Yeah, they're cute. Bamboo. <laughs> yeah. And they're like the, especially the baby pandas are so cute. Yes. They are so cute. They are so cute. Well, my answer, about, yeah, based answer? off of just coming back from whale watching, I would be a male orca. Why? Because. Female orca. That's kind of uh, sexist. Yeah, no, male orca. Because <laughs> they are apex predators. No one's going to eat them. Uh-huh. They just hang out in posses of their friends all day. And the males are taken care of by their mother their entire lives. Oh. So then you don't even, like, if I go and I try to hunt something and I get nothing, I'll just be like, hey, mom, where's my meatloaf? Some (laughs) humans do that. No, I'm not. Human males. No, I'm going to be a male orca. I mean, I was thinking so orcas are more um, dangerous than sharks. So why didn't we call it orca tank instead of? Baby shark. Oh, they're tank. dolphins. They're Ooh. not technically whales. No. Orcas are dolphins. I learned a lot about you them on this trip. I'm telling yeah. you. Man. Well, I would come back as a dolphin. It should be a meme. So like, we would be friends. You know, dolphin Jen America. goes on one trip to the Pacific Northwest, com- comes back a <laughs> whale expert, you know? <laughs> yes. Oh, man. That's. That's crazy. I did not know that. I didn't know either, but I'm like, hey, it sounds like a good life to me. You hang out with your friends. You do things for fun. You like swim around. I don't know, though. I mean, like, you know, global warming, seals are dying. Like, I don't like pandas. You just sit there and eat your environment. It's like unlimited bamboo. (laughs) But killer whales, you have to still stalk your prey. Have you seen those (laughs) videos? Like they're trying to look up from the water, trying to see if there's a seal on the ice. Oh, I don't know. That's tough. That's going to be stressful, I think. Have you ever saw a YouTube video of a panda eating um, bamboo? It is the most, it's the cutest thing ever. What about the baby pandas? They just like cling on to their caregivers or they just tumble down the slide. It's like there's, ah. They're very cute. Tamara, what animal would you be? Ah, dolphin. Dolphin. Okay. Yes. Because. Dolphin has a lot of energy, and I feel like I have a lot of energy. (laughs) Anyway, all right. Next real question for Peter. So we know you're a DJ. I have personally heard DJ Peter Liu perform. Oh. And I also heard that he's a super Justin Bieber fan, which is interesting. What? But Um, tell us the story of your DJing and why do you love Justin Bieber so much? Just to clarify, (laughs) I play what the people want to hear. 
Okay. And uh, I played Despacito. I'm sure I That's got like, multiple yeah. texts about how much no. you like Justin Bieber. I didn't at the play last like event. I wasn't even there. or something. <laughs> Although that would be pretty good, actually. Uh, okay, so how to become a DJ. So honestly, I did not, like in college, I used to choose playlists for our fraternity parties, but I didn't DJ. And mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, as we got older, every wedding, mm. I would always complain to Leslie, like, man, this DJ sucks. They're not even like, transitioning their songs not enough justin bieber yeah yeah <laughs> also our house staff dinners here like when we graduate from uh, residency and stuff or fellowship we have a like a party with dancing anyways the djs are we're always horrible mm. but then leslie got sick of me complaining about it so it wasn't really till intern year here mm-hmm. she, for my birthday she bought like a digital it's like what turntables used to be but now it's all digital it's like a di- digital dj controller and then one day I went and bought all these speakers and like microphones and she was very not happy with that purchase. And so she was like, if you're going to do this, you got to make some money doing it. You have to like make this money back. So then I started to DJ first, like for fun at people's houses. And then, and then like uh, one of my co-fellows, Sylvia O'Fay, shout out to Sylvia, uh, hired me for like a nineties hip hop birthday party and fellowship. Oh, wow. And then I started to DJ for the hospital and really? then I DJed weddings. What? I DJed weddings for two of my co-fellows. Oh, um, wow. All, yeah. the, all of them paid gigs? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I charge money Whoa. for sure. Well, I would you... like to hear from any of the second year fellows that are listening. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. what did you think? Or I guess now third years. Yeah. What did you think of the second year fellow conference and DJ Lou DJing? Or Is you that mean? your name? DJ yeah. Lou? Yeah. So I go by DJ Lou. It was uh-huh. just too hard. I don't want to. A little presumptuous, I think, to like make up a name for myself. Do you wear like a marshmallow on your head? I honestly, I have thought about like, I think it's just like, I think like, you know, dead mouse, marshmallow. Mm-hmm. I feel like they do that because they have anxiety when it comes to performing, mm. which I like used to get super stressed out when I was mm-hmm. DJing. So, but it's not like I was, you know, like in an arena. I'm just like in a small room. Yeah, with your friends. <laughs> you have Justin your Bieber. own like, um, like thing that you shout out, like, you know, there's like another one. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do not. We have the a, people. A what is it? We, we the best. Uh, it's we the best. And another one. Yes. Another one. Wait, <laughs> DJ, what? Khaled. DJ Khaled. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I don't do that. I don't do that. I'm like, uh, I just boring. I just play songs. You need and, one. Uh, I've danced to his music before. It's when very did good. you? When did I DJ? So it was a residency graduation a couple of years ago, pre-COVID, and then oh. also the Christmas party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yep. Mm-hmm. I DJ the Christmas party. Mm-hmm. Mark and I were dancing. Yeah. Okay. You need to DJ Nasp again. I mean, I wanna. You know, honestly, after the second year fellows conference, so Ben, just f- for those who weren't there, um, Ben Gold and I, we had planned to do like a DJ battle. But it kind of turned into more like we both DJed some, but he also wrote a rap, like a rap for the second year fellows. That's pretty cool. So he was like on the mic, spitting fire. Mm. I'm like DJing. It was incredible. That sounds so And nobody recorded that and put it on Twitter? People have recorded it. I know. It it was. I think there's some clips on Twitter, but I have like a pretty full recording. Man. So after that, we're like, dude, we got to do NASP again. And then, I don't know. I think he has like responsibilities he has to do, you know, Mm. as the president. (laughs) I'm free though. I'm cool with that. Oh, yeah. Tomorrow, why don't you write a rap? You're improv (laughs) now. (laughs) Next step is rapper. Yes. That's my next hobby. Yeah. (laughs) Do it. Um, Okay. So moving on to. Is there any other DJ questions? That, That was, that's about it, right? Yeah. There you go. That's the DJ origin story. So our topic today is about gastroparesis, which is a very fun, fun topic. Is it hard to stomach? Oh, (laughs) that was a good one. It wasn't written on there. I I came hard to digest. (laughs) That was really good. But I really want to know how you developed your interest in Uh, motility disorder and how did you decide to become a motilitist? Well, I I didn't want to become a motilitist because I want to become a modalist, which is a specialist in gastrointestinal. I'm going to put that in the dictionary. (laughs) Motilitist. (laughs) 
But uh, I would say it was kind of like many of our guests. It was kind of random by chance happening. Serendipitous. Serendipity, if you will. Um, Hashtag Carlo. <laughs> so, okay. I went to medical school at Northwestern when I was a third year. My first internal medicine rotation happened to be with this guy named Dr. John Pandolfino, who um, is actually like the head of our American Neurogastrology Montility Society currently. He created the Chicago classification for achalasia. So it just happened to be that oh. like day one, I'm with him. Hmm. And it's You're funny because like, in the field. We, well, yeah, I mean, he's like, so we've interacted since then. Ironically, he's actually introduced me at like a talk, but I've never told him. Yeah, so he was like the first person I rotated with. Before I learned about like MIs, I learned about esophageal manometries. And uh, I loved it. Yeah, that's cool. It's just cool to like see the physiology, you know, represented on a screen and to like study these things. And then, as I've mentioned before, you know, when I was a fourth year, I started doing research with Miguel Saps. And so Panofino was on the motility side. He's more on the functional GI disorder side or disorder of gut-brain interaction side. So that kind of further got me hooked into it. You know, I think I was like just intrigued that like we didn't really understand Especially then, this is like now, you know, 12 years ago, like we didn't really know what was causing the most common things that we see in clinic, like functional abdominal pain. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then I came to Columbus and then it's really all about mentors. Like my first mentor here, I wasn't necessarily saying like, oh, I have to do motility, but it was Hyatt Musa, who's now a head of motility at uh, CHOP. And I started doing research in gastric electrostimulation and sacral nerve stimulation. And that became my main interest. And then eventually started working more and more with Carlo Di Lorenzo and also with Des Jacob, who's the head of our motility center here. So that kind of cemented my life journey or my life's passion or whatever. It's like what Carlo always says, you know, it's like you don't choose your passion. You kind of just like, I forget what he says. Mm. You like develop your passion, mm -hmm. something like that. So yeah. That's pretty awesome. Wow. Got lucky. Lucky so, to become really the uh, coolest part of pediatric GI, a modalist. Motilitist? <laughs> Take us to the beginning. Like, what is gastroparesis? And you mentioned some of our other functional GI disorders. Like, how does it relate to some of the other ones we treat? Yeah. So, okay. So, gastroparesis, as we all know, definitely happens a lot in children as well. But, you know, I would argue that there's many different things that differentiate it from gastroparesis in adults. Mm -hmm. But the definition is the same. And that's when there's delayed gastric emptying without a mechanical obstruction, so there's no blockage, and you have characteristic symptoms like nausea, vomiting, early satiety, maybe abdominal pain, that kind of stuff. Mm. It is different than some of the other functional GI disorders or DGBIs, if you will, that we see. So you know, it's different than, for example, IBS or rumination syndrome or reflux. You know, they're just, they're just completely different processes. But there is one that I think is worth mentioning that it is very similar to that maybe some would argue is kind of the same thing or at least part of the same process. And that's functional dyspepsia. Mm -hmm. So functional dyspepsia, as everyone knows, you know, the diagnostic criteria are based on the Rome criteria currently in its fourth iteration. And so it's a functional abdominal pain disorder, but not only is it abdominal pain, you know, so it's like epigastric pain, but also maybe some fullness, bloating, nausea, vomiting, those kinds of symptoms. And, mm -hmm. you know, it turns out that symptom profile is really identical to what you see with gastroparesis. So, you know, so it looks the same, but, you know, maybe some will have gastroparesis as in delayed gastric emptying and some will not. But in studies of children with functional dyspepsia, up to half can have delayed gastric emptying. And then probably the most telling is in the adult literature, patients who are treated with a prokinetic mm -hmm. and their gastric emptying improves, their symptoms do not always improve. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's kind of uh, controversial whether these are two distinct things. I tend to think that gastroparesis is maybe along a spectrum with functional dyspepsia. Mm -hmm. And there are some patients who have functional dyspepsia without any delay in gastric emptying, while others have more of a pronounced delay in gastric emptying that might affect how you treat them. I think that's kind of the main distinction there. It's the demonstration of delayed gastric emptying along with the symptoms that were that we talked about. Hmm. So if they have delayed gastric emptying on imaging, then it's gastroparesis. But if they don't, it's functional dyspepsia? 
So I would say that's accurate. Um, in reality, I've kind of moved a little bit towards like calling it functional dyspepsia with gastroparesis or without um, gastroparesis, but mm-hmm. that's kind of a subject of a little bit of controversy in the modalist yeah. world. Um, but yeah, I Honestly. do think that there's a lot of overlap there and, you know, mm-hmm. including in the way that we evaluate and treat those patients. Interesting. So this is a topic you studied a lot and uh, you have a paper with a very, very cool title. (laughs) (laughs) Gastroparesis in the pediatric patient. Children are not little adults. And uh, I'll put in the link for that paper. But uh, in this uh, paper, you highlight that the diagnosis and management of pediatric patients with gastroparesis is very, very much different from adults. And the way we diagnose adults and the way we treated adults is not the approach to children. So we have a few questions about this paper that we'd like to dive into. First of all, if children are not little adults, <laughs> then what are they? I'm just kidding, kidding. Um, they are little adults, how- but just a little different. <laughs> it just, I had to make it a good title, you know? It is a good title. I like it. Um, so first question how is the diagnosis of gastroparesis different in pediatric patients than adults? Yeah. So how does the diagnosis of gastroparesis differ in children versus adults? So um, in reality, there are a lot of similarities. Like we talked about the definition is the same. There are nuances to how to measure delayed gastric emptying in children that make it a little bit different than for adults. So, you know, we may talk about this a little bit later, but our diagnostic modalities that measure gastric emptying were really established in the adult population. And even in the most accepted forms like gastric emptying scintigraphy, there's still not really good normal data, especially when stratified by age and uh, size, which we know can affect gastric emptying. So the overall principles for diagnosis are the same, but the way that we show delayed gastric emptying is different. And then, you know, especially for the little, little kids, like less than five, obviously they're not going to eat like, well, maybe like a five-year-old, but an infant's not going to eat two eggs and uh, two pieces of toast for a standard meal. So, you know, how do we adapt? How do we truly demonstrate delayed gastric emptying in that kind of population? So there's some questions there that, you know, honestly, I don't have the answers to, but there are some differences like that where especially for kids, we try to get an idea of like what the gastric thing is like, but it's not as clear cut as for adults. With adults, there's that association with diabetes, but like, what are the risk factors for children? And, you know, if you could also comment on COVID-19 and viruses or hypermobility, Ehlers-Danlos, like what kind of risk factors are we talking about here? So, yeah. Okay. So first of all, there are a couple limitations that prevent us from like really understanding gastroparesis more. And first of all, it's like we talked about, it's hard to diagnose. There's not like great definitions or great normal data really for delayed gastric emptying. Mm -hmm. And in part because of that, um, we don't have a good idea what the prevalence is, right? But we do have several fairly large uh, series of children with gastroparesis that we can kind of take some data from. We also, I guess it was 10 years ago now, did like a database study using the FIS database and looked at every gastroparesis hospitalization over a 10-year period. And so some of this information is from uh, those studies. But in terms of risk factors, I think starting from basic stuff. So it's interesting. I mentioned like this younger age group and both in some of the series of patients that were like retrospectively collected and also our FIS database study, about 40% of children with gastroparesis the people in the pediatric age group are under five years old. So it may be that age possibly um, is a risk factor, but as we talked about, you know, it's also very challenging to diagnose a young child. Second, you know, there is some fluctuation in the gender, like sex predominance. So for those younger kids, it tends to be a little bit more male predominant. And then as they get into older childhood, it kind of evens out. And then in teenagers, it becomes a bit more like adults where there's like a female predominance. In addition to that, we have this idea maybe of the adolescent who's also got EDS, you know, hypermobility type, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or anxiety, depression, that kind of stuff. But really a big chunk of the patients we see are also those patients who, who are diagnosed with gastroparesis are also those who have more complex medical issues, maybe a history of prematurity, cerebral palsy, developmental delay, seizure disorders. 
Um, in one series, about 40% of those patients had some kind of history like that. But we definitely are seeing more of kind of like this um, clinical picture where not only do they have symptoms that are consistent with functional dyspepsia or gastroparesis, but also EDS, maybe orthostatic intolerance, along with psychiatric comorbidities. So that's definitely something we're seeing more and more of. And even though the majority are idiopathic, we can't identify anything, post-viral is of the known causes is a big one. And there have been reports, including our, in our own, I think, JPGN reports, of gastroparesis that's been developed uh, after a COVID infection. I think many of us are seeing children who have IBS or functional dyspepsia after COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's hard to say whether it's really more common after COVID versus other viral infections. Yeah. Um, certainly medications can cause gastroparesis. So in adults, that's going to be a lot more common. In children, fortunately, narcotic and opioid use is, is a lot less. And some of the series that we've done, um, about 1% to 2% of children with gastroparesis have diabetes. And so that's a big difference from adults. And then I think one final risk factor I'll mention is post-surgical. So especially if there's a surgery that disrupted the vagal nerve, for example, mm-hmm. um, that's another known risk factor for developing gastroparesis in children. So we might get to this in a minute, but it just triggered something in me because we're talking a little bit about how COVID and there's this long covid And, you know, if we have an adult who has diabetes, like they may have gastroparesis for a very long time. But in pediatrics, depending on what risk factor you have, is that going to affect how long they're going to have gastroparesis? Do they have it forever? Like, how does that work? Yeah. In reality, I don't think we We know that. (laughs) And the uh, the other thing is, I mentioned before, there's this overlap between functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis. Over time, we definitely can see delayed gastric emptying normalize. Yeah even when the symptoms are still just as bad. Yeah. You know, we will oftentimes get referred patients maybe for gastric stimulation who they had like, you know, 60% retention in their stomach at four hours, which is pretty bad. And then we repeated here, they, their symptoms are just as bad and then now it's normal. Yeah. Um, in adults, there's studies where they did kind of back-to-back gastric emptying studies and it was about 30% where it was normal then went abnormal or abnormal then went normal. And all that happened was they just repeated the test. Mm. So there's a lot of limitations there. So, right. So the gastric emptying may improve. Who knows? It's hard to say how long it'll take. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know for functional dyspepsia and functional GI disorders in general that definitely there are children who can improve with time, but it's just hard to identify who responds, mm-hmm. who improves and who does not. So um, I just want to ask a clarification question about uh, a percentage that you mentioned. You said uh, gastroparesis is in one to 2% of pediatric patients. Is it uh, kind of that's the prevalence or that's the prevalence that we know? Oh, I was saying one to 2% of children with gastroparesis have diabetes. Oh, yeah. okay. Diabetic gastroparesis is just way less common. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah we don't know sense. the prevalence of, uh, of oh, gastroparesis yeah. in children. Although in adults, we actually don't know the prevalence in adults either, but they did one yeah. study, it was at Mayo, where they looked at the symptom profile of their patients who had delayed gastric emptying and then created a model trying to predict they have their population-based data where they have like everyone captured a fair number, like less than 5% would likely have delayed gastric emptying. But no, we have no idea what the prevalence is in children. That's interesting. Do you always get a gastric emptying scan on kids where you suspect gastroparesis? I really feel like to make the diagnosis of gastroparesis, you do need some kind of measure of gastric emptying, especially for little, little kids. There's like some limitations there. So I may not get like a gastric emptying scintigraphy for like a 12 month old. But for the older kids or especially teenagers, I do like to get gastric emptying studies. I feel like it can help guide your next steps. You know, do you try a prokinetic or do you go more towards like a neuromodulator? Do you get the single phase? Do you get the dual phase? So to be honest, I would say that we here in Columbus traditionally order solid gastric emptying studies. That being said, though, I think I was at DDW. I ran into yeah. Dr. Khalil El Shamas. I think had a poster because he said he was having this debate with J. Call about whether or not to also measure liquid gastric emptying, and he had some data showing that you know it might be helpful to yeah. measure that. You know, even if your solid emptying is normal, maybe your liquid is delayed, and maybe that has some impact on your presentation. So, traditionally, I've always done solid, but in the future, I might change that. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the gastric emptying scan is what special 
pre-procedural things you tell the patients to do, like stop your medications before the procedure? So just to kind of go over the basics, gastric emptying stratigraphy. Patients ingest a standard meal that's radio-labeled. And then at certain periods of time, nuclear medicine is used to measure the activity that's still in the stomach, right? So that way you can calculate the percent retention at, you know, maybe uh, one hour, two hours, and four hours is kind of how we do it here. So for that kind of study, we do have patients hold medications before the study, especially if they're already on a prokinetic. And um, we do ask them to eat that standard meal, two eggs and two pieces of toast. As you might imagine, younger kids have a harder time finishing that meal. I think in one study, 13% could not finish the whole meal, and they tended to be younger and smaller children. Eggs and toast also is not the ideal meal for every child. Obviously, some kids are picky, but also if you have egg or wheat allergy or intolerance, that's not going to be, or if you have celiac disease, if you're not accustomed to a Western diet, there's many limitations in that standard meal. But that is something that we use. We try to make it as standardized as possible. Even though there's not great normal data, there have been a couple studies showing the value of a four-hour test in children, including one done by a friend of the pod, Dr. Miguel Saps. Um, so there have been studies on it, but you know, there's just not great normative data. So we do extrapolate kind of the adult data to it, even though we know there are some limitations, especially for the young children and smaller children. Do you hold cyproheptidine? Um, I would. So, okay. you know, cyproheptidine has many different effects, including some anticholinergic effects. And so we know anticholinergic medications can delay gastric emptying. Mm. So, yeah, so I would. And hold do you it. ever use? Insure or the meal? Well, you know, so for like when you're measuring liquid gastric emptying, that'd be like a little bit different. Um, you know, and then especially for babies, you know, our yeah. our radiologists will label formula of whatever they're taking, um, but it's just not as standard. You can imagine different volumes, different types that's going to yeah. potentially affect what the normal value should be. Um, but yeah, the most standard ones can be the solid one, which is why yeah. we've primarily relied upon that. And then you mentioned getting a lot of these tests in your patients. And so what kind of radiation exposure are we talking about here? Is it the same as an x-ray? Is it more than an x-ray? Or how does it relate? Or That's a good question. I, I don't know how it compares to other studies, but that is like one of the main limitations to doing it in kids. Yeah. And also probably the main reason why we don't have good normative data, you know? Can't just be like, mm -hmm. let's radiate you and you. Exactly. And you and you. All you healthy kids come and get a radio labeled thing in your stomach. Well, and you know, to follow up on that, like what about manometry? Are there other modalities that we can use that are not as yeah. radioactive? So yes, there's probably like three, two like accepted ways of also looking at gastric emptying, but you asked about manometry. I'll first answer that. So like we do antroduodenal manometry. So there are sensors in the antrum in the stomach and uh, there is some limited data that, Antral activity can correlate with gastric emptying, including from our own Dr. Rudy Sanchez, our current GI motility fellow. Shout out. <laughs> I'm trying to think. He just presented it, I believe, at DDW um, in May, but more data is coming soon. But he did find some correlation between antral contractions and gastric emptying status. Mm -hmm. That being said, though, the modalities that have been really used to measure gastric emptying would be so gastric emptying breath testing and potentially a wireless motility capsule, which is also the smart pill. So just kind of really quick gastric emptying breath testing. Carbon-13 is given combined with uh, I think it's octanoic acid or spirulina, which is like an algae. And then that's given in food. Mm, and, then, <laughs> and then we look for the presence of exhaled carbon-13 gas in breath specimens over time. So we actually did a study looking at that here and interestingly, correlation with gastric emptying scintigraphy, our like gold standard, has not always been perfect. It's kind of mixed in adults. There have been some studies in children that show that maybe there's some correlation. Our own study here actually did not find great correlation. But interestingly, gastric emptying breath testing, so it does not involve radiation. It can be done in the office. And so there is actually some normative data for that. But I think it's still not very widely available. And I think it's a little concerning that the results don't always correlate well with our accepted gastric emptying scintigraphy. Mm. Wireless motility capsule is another kind of technology that we have 
studied here. We don't really use it in clinical practice that much, although there are some places that do use it a lot. It's almost like a video capsule endoscopy, except instead of taking pictures, this little capsule that you swallow measures temperature, I think, pressure, and pH. And so people have used it to measure the time that the capsule's in the stomach. So you know, from, from ingestion to when the pH spikes and it's left the stomach. So one of our former motility fellows here, who's now at Lurie Children's, Dr. Alex Green, did a study and showed some correlation between transit time in the stomach and also delayed gastric emptying. I believe that it was very sensitive in picking up delayed gastric emptying on scintigraphy, but not very specific. So it caught more than what the gastric emptying scintigraphy did. But That's we don't really use that either. So hmm. <laughs> we really primarily still use gastric emptying scintigraphy despite its limitations. Do kids ever throw it up? All the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we'll get it before we know that a child actually has rumination syndrome. And it's classic. Kids with rumination syndrome will ruminate the standard meal and then it can sometimes show up as delayed gastric emptying because it's not actually emptying. Right. Anyway, so yes, kids vomit the meal all the time. So that's a false positive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would say that's something that we see fairly regularly as a you know, big referral center for kids with rumination. Interesting. So let's dive into treatment. Let's start with dietary therapy. Is there any dietary changes that you would recommend for your patients? The first step to treatment is still going to be assessing for fluid, electrolyte, nutritional, like urgent deficiencies, right? So that's different. So yeah, they may need tube feeding or stuff like that. But for the more mild patient where they're eating by mouth, we know that larger meals tend to empty slower. We know that high fat, high fiber meals empty slower. So I usually recommend smaller meals more frequently throughout the day and trying to go low fat, maybe even low fiber. But in reality, like there's one series where only 1.5% of patients were able to be treated with dietary changes alone. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it might help, but in reality, we're probably going to need something else, especially if they've gotten to the point where they're seeing you in clinic. Yeah, that's true. But also chewing your meals. I'm always surprised whenever I talk to my patients about their meals, how many kids are just inhaling their food. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always tell them instead of eating three meals a day, maybe you should eat six meals a day, six small <laughs> meals a day instead of three big meals a day. Yeah. As long as they cut down in size and don't yeah. just eat yeah. like six huge meals a day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but it's true. Like, you know, sometimes when, kids will need tube feeding, pureed, yeah. you know, right. whatever wow. to make the emptying better. Interesting. And so, okay. So maybe in our 1%, it does work for dietary therapy, but then what types of medications do you use and what are some of the issues you have with the meds? Yeah, so, okay. As every uh, modalist is like acutely aware of, many of, our, many of our motility medications, especially the best ones, are no longer on the market. So we wow. mentioned, yeah, we mentioned in uh, Rachel Rosen's episode that Domperidone, which is available for Jason in Canada, is not available here. Mm -hmm. Cisapride, you know, tons of evidence for cisapride use uh, in, in children as well. A lot of it's done by Carlo. That's not available here as well. So we do rely, um, I'd say it's still kind of like our first thing to try. We'll often try erythromycin. So expensive though. It is. And it's it hard is. to get the insurance to cover it. It's yes. cheaper than the alternatives we have. Oh, that's true, but it's still expensive. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. We use it all the time. I haven't had that many problems with coverage. Um, but yeah, erythromycin, so, you know, macrolide antibiotic, it's a modulin agonist. So erythromycin, the main problem there is where kids will develop tachyphylaxis. And so we may have to like sometimes stop it, restart it, but it may not be a good long-term option. And then the other one that we've been using more and more recently is procalipride. It's approved for adults, primarily for constipation, but it, we know it does also help with really the motility throughout the GI tract, including in the stomach. Rachel Rosen recently published a case series of kids who were treated with procalipride for upper GI symptoms, including some that may potentially be related to slow gastric emptying. So I feel like that's been encouraging. There have been studies in, a, in children for constipation where they demonstrated that it was a fairly safe medication. Ironically, you know, the randomized controlled trial for procalipride for constipation was negative. But anyways, so that's another option that we feel optimistic about. So same kind of mechanism as cisapride, but it's going to be more selective 
5-HT4 agonist. So hopefully fewer side effects than cisapride. So go back to erythromycin for a second. Mm-hmm. What dosing do you normally use? Yeah, so for enteral, oral or tube uh, erythromycin, I use three to five mix per kilo TID. Do you ever use cyproheptadine or azithromycin in these patients? Yeah, so azithromycin, as modalists may know, for AD antiduinal manometry studies, like at one point, IV erythromycin was not available. So everyone switched over to IV azithromycin, which mm-hmm. really generated the same kind of response. And I think some people actually wrote it up, same kind of response during the AD manometry. It's a little bit different pharmacokinetics than erythromycin, so you can't dose a TID. I've only used it where I have some patients who are on azithromycin chronically for lung disease. And I may ask them to try increasing the dose to like a promotility dose. But uh, yeah, I would say I've still been primarily using erythromycin, although azithromycin we know can have a similar effect. Hmm. Um, Ciprohepidine, you know, like I mentioned before, has some anticholinergic effects. So if someone has like horrible gastric emptying, I would try to avoid it. Another one that is like commonly in that same category is amitriptyline. So Mm -hmm. amitriptyline we use all the time for those symptoms, but may slow the emptying of the stomach. But it's kind of like goes back to the overlap, you know, like we know that even if they have gastric emptying, that might not really be the problem that's causing their symptoms. So to me, it may still be worth a try depending on what their symptoms are, how severe it is, what else you've tried. But, you know, technically those have the potential for slowing things down. Interesting. So it sounds like, you know, we are limited in what medications that we can use. So hopefully there are some new ones coming down the line. Yeah. But if you've tried a different medications, like when do we start thinking about pyloric Botox or yeah. like pyloric dilatation? So I guess before even getting there, I think it's important. Like you don't, you're not just trying the prokinetics, right? It's like the whole picture. You might try other kinds of medications that are more like targeting sensation or whatever. You might try antispasmodics, antiemetics. You might try behavioral treatment and cognitive behavioral therapy. But once you've gone past like medical treatment options, they're still struggling. Or sometimes like if you just need to do an endoscopy anyway, then uh, that's when I'll try endoscopic pyloric Botox injection. Mm-hmm. And it does seem to maybe work better if there's some delay in gastric emptying, but we know it can help even those with normal emptying, which is a little bit puzzling. So I don't know that we fully understand the mechanism. It's probably not just relaxing the muscle we tend to think maybe it decreases how sensitive the stomach is as well. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's something where there's limited data so far, although we're doing a study currently on it. And uh, there have been a handful published that show good response. You know, a little bit of the dilation part is kind of dependent on what center you trained in. So I know at Cincinnati, um, I feel like Ajay always does dilation with uh, always with do, injection. yeah, Botox with dilation. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say always, but the majority of time. Yeah, so we traditionally never do dilation, so I still don't do dilation. But I mentioned Dr. Sanchez, our motility fellow, so he's currently doing a randomized trial looking at that. So hopefully there's more data coming out soon. With and without. Uh Uh-huh. Yep, yep. So that's going to be awesome. I feel like, you know, we just need so much data. We need more data for stuff like gastroparesis and kids where it's not super common and our options are really limited and we're trying to apply all the stuff from adults to kids, but... As we talked about, like there's major differences that, you know, yeah. you can't compare, you know, a two-year-old who's got CP, developmental delay on like, you know, GJ feeds right. to a 70-year-old diabetic gastroparesis. Yeah. They're just like the two different. No. Well, and for any patients. of our listeners who have interest in this, certainly reach out. I mean, yeah. DJ Lou is here. <laughs> no, I was going to say think- the, the bar is low. It's like oh, there's like oh, no studies there. You the know, you do low. anything. You have lots of opportunity <laughs> exactly. for research. So, okay. So we yeah. talked about dilation, but what about pyloromyotomy? Yeah. So we, we do not do that here. I mean, we've had patients who've had it done at other places. In the adult world, there's more and more data coming out about different kinds of pyloric interventions, including gastric poem or G poem. So kind of like what people do for achalasia with per oral, so by the mouth, endoscopic myotomy, which is like just crazy. If you haven't seen a video of it, you should watch it. But gastric, so G poem is a thing, but I've had one patient who's had that. Mm -hmm. Um, So no, we don't use pyloromyotomy a lot, um, in part because we tend to use gastric electrostimulation here more. Mm -hmm. Yes, Um, that's going to be my next question. (laughs) So you're the expert on gastric electric stimulation. Can you tell us what it is? 
who's a candidate for it? And so far, what are the results that you've seen? So I would, first of all, just to clarify, I'm not the expert in it. Okay. Okay. Uh, To me, you're the expert. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so yes, our, our center here, I've been lucky, like I mentioned before, that when I came here, that was something that at Nationwide, they've been starting actually for a few years. So I was very intrigued by it because I'd never seen it, heard of it. And uh, so gastrointestinal stimulation is a treatment that involves low energy electrical stimulation. So not enough to actually make the muscle squeeze. So it does not pace the stomach. It does not uh, consistently improve gastric emptying, but it's low energy electrical stimulation of the stomach through a lead that's implanted in the gastric wall. And the lead is connected to a stimulator and that's implanted in in a subcutaneous pocket on the abdominal wall. And uh, that's something that really has been used in adults for over 20 years with good results. There's now uh, several randomized controlled trials demonstrating benefit compared to when the stimulator is off. We've been using it here since 2009, so for 13 years. Last year, we published a review of our first 10 years of experience. I think one other thing to point out before I go go into results is, at least in pediatrics and sometimes in adults, it starts with a trial. So the patient comes here, usually they're from out of state, they'll come here for usually two, three weeks. We do an endoscopy where we actually place a lead, like a little flexible wire through their nose down to the stomach. And then Des Jacob, a few doors down, has created this innovative technique where we tie little sutures to the lead. And then it's almost like a little claw game. It's awesome. We uh, actually pin it down using different clips and try to really pin down the conducting region to the lining of the stomach. Then we take the scope out. So the lead is in place, and then that gets connected to a stimulator outside the body, and then we turn it on and see what happens. So nothing is implanted until we've really demonstrated that the child's going to respond. That makes sense. Yeah, especially before like a permanent surgery for a kid. So that's something that every patient of ours will go through to demonstrate that this is the right decision before anything permanent gets done. Is it different from... A gastric pacemaker? So it's the same thing. People call it, including us, we'll sometimes call it a gastric pacer or a gastric pacemaker. But okay. it's a little bit misleading because it's, yeah. it's totally different than a cardiac pacemaker. So is it does it not like entrain a, gastric muscle. Is it like a vagal nerve, nerve stimulator for kids with seizure? It's probably more similar to that. So we think okay. that the mechanism is more changing maybe how the stomach is sensing things maybe improving gastric accommodation. So that's one of the things that we're measuring now. Um, so, right, it's not consistent. It's, so first of all, we have about almost half of our patients have normal gastric emptying before they get a gastric simulation and they still respond. And then, um, but there is data in adults that if you have delayed gastric emptying, it can normalize or at least become more normal. But it's probably not the only effect. So yeah, it's the same thing. But gastric electrical stimulator is what I prefer. But hmm. People okay. will know what you mean. Good to know. Similar terminology for the same thing. Yeah. So like I mentioned, you know, last year we published a paper that kind of summarizes everything we had in our prospective patient registry. I could go on and on about how huge of a difference this has made for some of our patients. Just one outcome to focus on. Okay. So our paper included about 80 to 90 patients who um, were treated with gastric stimulation. And the most striking thing is at baseline, only 30% we're getting all the nutrition by mouth. Okay, so that means they need tube feeding or, or, or TPN or just you know, partial parental nutrition. But just after one month, the percentage of people, of children taking everything by mouth, so no longer needing tube feeding or parental nutrition, had gone up to 60%. That's in one month. Wow. Like there's good. nothing else like that. It's, it's crazy when you like witness it in person. Obviously, that's not 100%, but that's like a pretty 60% decent 60% is good. Yeah, And then at their most recent follow-up, 70% uh, were no longer on tube feeding or parental nutrition. And these are kids who are refractory to like everything else, you know? It's like the most severe patient. So anyway, so that's like, I think one of the striking things that we've found. And then I think the other thing that, you know, we did is we called all these families a median of five plus years after they got their stimulator. And almost everybody would recommend other families to get it over, over 90%. And then 98%, if they could go back in time, would do it again. Wow. And uh, almost all patients, looking back, still felt like they were getting benefit from the surgery. So when we compared, like the, the benefit inventory is like a standardized score. 
I mean, the score we got from gastric stimulation was higher than things like tubes, like ear tubes for ear infections or like, uh, like Ian, you know, common, commonly accepted procedures that it's like standard of care, but the scores that we got were, were better. So anyways, that. it's something that like for sure needs more research. Okay. Cause like there's still, although we're working on it, there's still no controlled studies of gastric stimulation in children, but you know, I feel like it's one of those things where we just need to look at this more because this is something that it does something. It's just trying to perfect how we deliver it and how we choose the patients who get it. It's for patients with refractory gastroparesis, but any other criteria? So that's a good question. So just to clarify, so really we use it for severe like refractory nausea and vomiting, mm-hmm. whether it's caused by gastroparesis or functional dyspepsia. Oh. Yeah. So you know, technically we've had patients who have like other kinds of organic etiologies that we've tried it on, but really the majority of our patients are going to be children, our youngest in the literature. There have been some who have been under two, but our youngest was two children who have severe nausea and vomiting. The majority are requiring supplemental nutrition. Then all of them have tried a number of medications, sometimes pyloric Botox, sometimes auricular neurostimulation or other kinds of treatments, but they still have symptoms. So when you do that trial period, and probably I should have read this in the paper, but I can't remember, yeah, geez, what, per- ah, what percentage <laughs> of them actually do well and actually respond? Yeah, who get the stimulator. Mm-hmm. So it's above 90%. Okay. I think it's like 93 or so it's something. It's a pretty good number. It's like a pretty good chance if you're trying it, you might get yeah, it. Yeah, but I think part of that is also because we're very selective. Mm-hmm. Like We turn down a lot of patients who want- Oh, really? You know, There's so many forums online, including gastric stimulator forums- and like our names are on there and it's just interesting because some families from you know other states are just so fixated on my child needs a stimulator, um, but we're very selective. So we try to really choose the ones who have really tried everything mm-hmm. and, um, you know, need this. Are there any risks to having it? What yeah. are the side effects? Yeah. So there are definitely downsides. And so like during the trial, we really try to make the decision as a group. So we have some... We get a lot of symptom scores during the trial. We try to have some objective measures. So we try to measure gastric accommodation with like a drinking test. Um, people have done gastric emptying studies during the trial. But really the decision in my mind is at least half also the family, right? So we want them to really think it's worth it. So what are the downsides? First of all, one thing that we have to keep in mind is it is not as of now MRI safe. So we've had patients who've had like spine or brain issues and they need MRIs and they're just not an option. Um, you know, during surgeries, it has to be turned off ideally. And the other thing is the battery does not last forever. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. How yeah. long does it last? Like the 13 years you've been doing it, do you have to change it? Yes. Or? So, um, I believe the company says it'll last, you know, a few years, maybe five years, but it may be because of the settings we're using. Like sometimes if they're not doing well, we'll adjust the settings, turn it up, but we've had to change batteries in like two, three years sometimes. I mean, it's not a major surgery. The battery is just uh, on just under the skin, but still it's a procedure under anesthesia. And then um, about, I think it was 18% in our paper of patients did have a complication where they needed another procedure, usually not major. Usually it's more like some discomfort at the site, or maybe they can feel some moving of the stimulator, that kind of stuff. But it's pretty rare. You know, I think most kids do well with it. It's really the battery changes that are kind of the main thing that they'll have to go back for. I mean, we can now charge our cell phone by just putting it on a something. Come on. Yeah, it's like What's wireless. Like you could just lay charger. it down on top of like one of those wireless charger things. So in reality, like yes, that should it's be true amazing. because so I don't want to get too much into details, but, you know, so the the stimulator was formerly made by Medtronic. OK, and Medtronic also makes, makes sacral nerve stimulators, which is the other thing that you know we study here. And that stimulator has been made MRI safe. It does offer wireless charging. Families have the controller they can use at home, but they don't make money. And so no offense to Medtronic, but there wasn't the same interest in gastric electrical stimulation. So they have not really invested money in improving. Our remote looks like a humongous brick cell phone from like the early 90s. Come on, Yeah, I know. So actually I have talked to Medtronic about wireless. Like, why don't you just bring some of the stuff in SNS to gastric stim? Um, interestingly, gastric, gastric simulators are now kind of uh, spun off into a separate company called Intera Medical. And so a lot of us who use this are 
optimistic maybe that there'll be some changes made. But for example, the temporary gastric stimulation stuff, that's like a self-rigged up system. You know, that's not from the company. We buy cardiac pacing leads. That's what we use. We use our own endoclips. There's no system. We tie sutures to make it connect. But anyway, so it's like that. When it comes to charging (laughs) your cell phone, if you have too thick of a phone case, it's not going to work. So I don't know how it works with skin. (laughs) haven't tried it. But it's it's implanted just under the skin. You know, it's not even in the abdominal cavity. That's true. I need to plug myself. (laughs) (laughs) We also use a remote that communicates with the stimulator. Yeah. Um, So it is able to get past whatever skin is there. But we do have a lot of kids, especially the little kids who do call it their battery yeah. or like their energy. It's like, it's kind of like cute. A Iron Man. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. People have said that. It's yeah. Cool. So the parents are like, well, you got to check your battery again or check your like your power or, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Very <laughs> awesome. Peter, it has been so great to sit down and talk to you <sighs> about you. this topic that you're clearly so passionate about. Yeah. And I am so glad that we get to be co-hosts and co-workers on this and, So now I'm really interested in this answer because you're somebody that we all look up to. So looking back on your career, is there something you would have done differently that you would recommend to residents, fellows, junior faculty? What advice do you have for us? So, um, so first of all, thank you. I mean, it's kind of weird slash crazy that now I'm a guest on this podcast, but (laughs) you guys will all have your turn too. (laughs) But, um, We'll like, see. It depends on how well this one does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. True. This is going to sound really corny, but I tried not to like dwell on uh, things that I messed up on that, you know, that I regret. Like everybody, I've made so many mistakes like all the time, but you know, I don't think I would do anything differently because I feel like all those things you learn from and that's just life. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. So I, yeah, I mean, I think really though, you know, things that came to mind were like, you know, complications from procedures or, uh, you know, like bad patient interactions. I feel like that kind of stuff weighs on me the most, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But, um, but those are all learning experiences. I think it's like, as long as you are honest, like sincere, you really try to improve based on things like that, that happen. Um, you know, that's all you can do. And everyone's going to run into those at some point. The second year fellows conference that I went to in February, probably the most impactful thing was having a panel organized by our former guest, Dr. Chris Lee of successful people standing up on the stage, talking about their mistakes, you know, they're like failures. So that's something that I think happens to everybody. Just got to learn from it. One thing that I have done to some degree, but I could have done more, especially early on is leaning on your mentors. You know, Mm -hmm. everything you've gone through, they've gone through too. Mm -hmm. They have that bigger picture, you know, where they're like, you know, 30,000 feet up and kind of tell you, okay, don't worry about it. This is what you do next. You know, practical things. Uh, obviously, we can go on and on and on talking. <laughs> it's true. But once again, thank you, Peter Liu, for joining us. This has been fun. Um, yeah. Any final words for our listeners? So if you haven't already, register for the Single Topic Symposium. And NASP oh, again. Yes. And NASP again. And I guess the other plug is if you are interested in motility stuff. So I know like you know, there's been some data, including from our friend, Khalib Graham from Cincinnati. Uh, he did a study showing that fellows are craving more motility knowledge, right? Oh, wow. So just a quick plug, next year in the fall, September 2023, hmm. we're going to have the World Pediatric Neurogastronology Motility Meeting here in Columbus, Ohio. No way. I know. At first, when Carlos <laughs> said that, I was like, wait, you sure you want these people from like, Italy, Australia to come to Columbus. Columbus yeah. is great. But I was like, what? That's but it's happening. Fun. So yeah, we're going to make though. it. Is it going to be in it our new convention summer. center? New convention. It is. It's in the new conference center. Oh, September's nice here too. September. Yeah. Okay. It's because there's an OSU game that weekend. Because oh, I was thinking like, you know, if you're going to yes. come to Columbus, Ohio, the one thing that cannot be replicated is OSU football. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Come it on. It can be replicated at other football stadiums. Maybe like two or three other schools. That's it. But okay. Yes. So okay. Well, we if you want to be a motilitist. Yeah. If you, <laughs> you want to be a motilitist and come to a game with us, it's not like a high profile game. So we will be able to get tickets. And we will be tailgating. Yes, for tailgating. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, you embrace the word motilitist. Did I say that? Yes. No, damn it. Ah, I did not realize that. 
Oh man, tomorrow you, <sighs> you just keep today. saying it. It's gonna just start coming. It's gonna out. be in the dictionary along it's, with attendantship. Attendingship, I'm on board with. I do like that one too. Yeah. So September 2023. Thanks for coming, Peter. Thanks, Thanks for, for having me. What a great episode! Yeah, Peter. Thanks. I learned a lot. We learned yes, a lot. We'll have you back for part two in the future? Oh yes, I have a lot more questions. So if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our bus route page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGAN Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspgan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussions, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thank you all for listening. Bye. <laughs> See you in Aspen again.